So this morning, um, as I was preparing, the Lord wanted me to talk about His presence. And there's a, a prayer that occurs in my daily devotion. Um, every single day, Monday through Sunday, uh, the daily devotion ends with this prayer. And it is this one right here. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Let me repeat that one more time. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. As I have spent this week praying that prayer over myself and my household, it has given me something to hold on to, and that is where I go, When I go, God goes with me. And I have been asking the Lord to talk with me this week so that I could talk with you this week about what that looks like, what that means. And um, I wanted to ask you before we get too much further into this, if I say the presence of God, what does that mean to you? And you can share if you want. The presence of God. Security, assurance, companionship, foundation, love. One of the things for me, um, and this goes with my own issues, you know, because each human being has baggage from things that have happened in their world. My baggage, thank God he healed me mostly of it, (laughs) but it did rear its ugly head this week, so it's still not completely gone. My baggage as a human being is fear of rejection. Being a pastor is not necessarily a good vocation for someone who fears rejection. (laughs) But it is what it is, and it's where I'm supposed to be. But there was a point this week where, wow, (laughs) I didn't journal it. I probably should have journaled it because it's starting to come up to me right now. There was this point in my week where um, something happened where I, I got real concerned and really upset, and really bothered, and I was trying to figure out why I responded in the way that I... I mean, I didn't, I didn't say or do anything inappropriate, but when this interaction happened, um, and it actually was email, it wasn't even face-to-face. When this email came, all of a sudden, all of this anxiety welled up inside of me, and all of my oh, stuff happened. And as I began to think through it, and again, I didn't journal it, I just thought through for a little bit, I recognized that The old habits, the old negative talking to myself was rearing up again, saying, 
You're not worthy. You don't have any worth at all. You're a rotten person. You failed again. You're garbage. And see, this person is rejecting you. And literally, three days later, I happened to come across that same email looking for something else. And I was just scanning emails as I was looking for it. And I saw that. I read through it. And I realized that the words weren't caustic in any way. And the words weren't rejecting in any way. It was just my own stuff filtering and perceiving incorrectly that this person was rejecting me. And as I was reflecting on this, may the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. I was like, God, in that moment, I didn't feel your peace. In that moment, I didn't feel your companionship. I was alone. I was rejected. I was... And I, again, meditated on that for a little bit, and I thought, how do I get past that? And I don't think that it is something that... I can give you an ABC checklist... And have you do these three things and everything will be good from here on out. You'll never have a problem. But what I can give you is the understanding that it is an intentional walking out day by day, knowing and believing and trusting that he is present with me and he is going to guide my steps. And interestingly enough, that was not my plan for my sermon, but it all dovetailed with where I was going. Because see, the sermon lesson that I'm looking at this morning is out of Exodus chapter 33. And it's actually 32 and 33 and part of 34, but we don't have time this morning to read through the whole thing. So let me just give you a short synopsis. The Israelites have left Egypt. They have gone through their desert wandering. They've come to the Red Sea. The Lord God split open the Red Sea. The uh, Egyptians were trailing after the, the Israelites. They passed through the Red Sea. The Egyptians went into the Red Sea and were then drowned because the Red Sea closed over them. And then they came to Mount Sinai. And they're based at Mount, at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up into the mountain and he sees God. And he spends time with God. And there comes this point in chapter 32 where the people of Israel who are down at the base of the Mount Sinai turn to Aaron and say, We don't know what's going on. Moses has been gone forever. Who knows? Maybe he died up there. And we're just sitting here wasting our time. We don't even know who this God was. Moses was our mediator. He was our in-between guy. And now we don't know what's happened to him. Show us the God that we're serving. And so Aaron then turns to people and he says, "Um, Take off all the jewelry that you got when you left Egypt. And so it says people took off their earrings and their rings and their bracelets and their necklaces and gave it to him. And he took the gold from that, melted it down. And in Aaron's words, I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Well, reality was he had to carve a wooden bull and then take this this gold that that was melted down and then poured out and then hammered into thin, thin, thin sheets and then hammered around this wooden bull, and it became a golden calf, a golden bull, that they then set up an altar and began worshiping. And as I was reading the commentary this week on this, I was thinking, I was taught that I had never heard this before, 
that this was not necessarily a rejection of Yahweh. This was simply, they didn't know what had happened to Moses, and Moses had been the mediator between the nation of Israel and Yahweh, and so they were needing to see Yahweh, and so they wanted this statue to worship as Yahweh. Which was an interesting thought to me, because I always like, well, how did they turn away from God that quickly after seeing all of the miracles that he did, bringing them through the desert? But the bottom line was, they violated the, t- the Ten Commandments. Because it says you will make no graven images. You will worship only God. And so Moses comes down the mountain with these two two tablets filled with all of the writings of God. And he smashes them and breaks them. And he takes that golden calf and he burns it and grounds it into powder and pours it on the water and makes the people drink it. And the commentary said, think about that. He made them take their idol and pass it through their digestive tract. And they defecated it out. Think about that. So much for their God. Yes, ma'am. It can be a poison. Well, it also says that there was a plague, and it says that 3,000 people died. There was also some destruction that took place, and the Levites were set apart. But then we come to chapter 33, and God says, well, let's, let's just read that. It's easier to read it than it is to to try and paraphrase it. Chapter 33 of Exodus, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. And you and the people that you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. And I'll send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and Hittites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. Go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going to go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. And when the people heard these distressing words, what distressing words? He just said he's going to send them to this land of milk and honey and give them the inheritance that they've been promised. What were the distressing words that he said? I won't be gone with you. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and they put, and no one put on any ornaments. But the Lord had said to Moses, you tell them, these stick-necked people, if I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Then it changes the story just a tiny little bit. It gives us a different picture. and It says, Moses then would go out to a tent that he had pitched outside the camp, some distance away from the camp. And he, they, he called it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to that tent of meeting outside of the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise and stand at the entrances of the tents and watch until he entered this tent of meeting. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance of his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, didn't leave the tent. And that little bit right there tells us that God didn't give up on the Israelites, but he wasn't going to be right over them anymore. He wasn't going to be with them anymore, because they were stiff-necked and rebellious and, and went against him and everything that he had done for them. But he stayed with Moses, and he continued an intimate relationship with Moses. And it says that the presence of God would cause the people to worship. 
So there's some, we talked about it a little bit this morning. There's something about coming into the presence of the Holy, to the presence of the Almighty, that makes you aware of God's holiness and makes you very aware of your lack of holiness. Isaiah's words, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a people of unclean lips. And God then provided the remedy for that. But the reality is when you come into the presence of the holy, there is two things that happen. Number one, this sense of I am not worthy. And the other sense of, oh, you are so worthy of praise and honor and glory. And I fall on my face before you. I'm not worthy to even offer you worship. But I offer you worship because of who you are. And the presence of God does that. And the lack of the presence of God brings regret and remorse. If I do something to cause God's presence to withdraw from me, this idea of talking about with the kids of trying to steal, violating the standard, knowingly doing what you know you're not supposed to do, sin, that's a word nobody wants to hear this day and age. If I sin against God, God, according to his nature, withdraws his presence from me. He doesn't give up on me, but he ain't going to hang around with nothing that's dirty and filthy and ugly. He pulls back. And the reason I believe that he does that is because it's a, it's a way to get my attention to say, this is the way you want to live? You, when you're in my presence, what do you experience? And you guys said it this morning. Trust and hope and, and, and comfort and stability and foundation and whatever all else you said. But when the, with, when the presence of God is withdrawn from me, what do you experience? When you can't feel God's presence, when you don't know that he's right there with you, what do you experience? Fear? Anxiety? Worry? Sadness, they were, they were in remorse. It says they wouldn't even get dressed, if you will. They wouldn't even put on their adornment. They, just, they were just saddened. But then if you go to verse 12, this is the part that just gripped me this week. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people. But you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and I have, you have found favor with me. Well, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I can know you and continue to find favor with you. And remember, this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, and I'm making this intonation up. This isn't given in the text. All right, all right, my presence will go with you. I'll give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. In other words, don't play with me, God. Don't tell me you're going to do it and don't do it. Because this is not something that's... This is too important, God. You said you're going to send your presence. If you really are, do it. Don't, don't game, play games with me, please. And he says, If not, don't send us up from here. Because how will anyone know? How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you do go with us? What else will distinguish us, your people, from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, okay, so show me your glory. And God's like, uh, no, no, you're, 
you're a human being. If I showed you my glory, you'd be zapped. I couldn't do that. But we can work something out. Here, listen. You stand on this rock here, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'll walk by, and I'll let you see my back. If you saw my face, you'd be scorched. You couldn't, you couldn't stand it. You're a human being. But if you, you can at least see the, there's a result of my glory. Will that work? And most like, eh, it's good enough. If that's all I'm going to get, it's good enough. And so that's what happened. And then later on in 34, it says that Moses, whenever he would spend time with God, would begin to glow. And one of the things I learned in my study, which is a little rabbit trail, but I wanted to tell it to you because you need it for future reference, I'm sure. If you ever see a picture of the statue of Moses that was done by Michelangelo, you will see Moses with two horns. What? Yeah, literally. I saw the picture this morning. It was in our Sunday school lesson, although you guys didn't see it. No, it wasn't. It was in one of the commentaries I was reading. Never mind. Back up. And I was like, why in the world did Michelangelo depict Moses with horns? Well, back when the Bible was being translated from the ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek to the Latin, which was the language of the day, that translation was known as the Vulgate translation, the Latin Vulgate. And in the, in the, the Hebrew, that means the glow that Moses' face had when he, was, he would radiate from his being in the presence of God. The same word can be interpreted horns. So the Vulgate version, the Latin version of the Bible says, Moses grew horns as a result of being in the presence of God. And so Michelangelo, only having the Latin translation available to him, is reading it and says, oh, Moses had horns. And so he made a statue of Moses with horns. But what those horns represent is this supernatural glow that happened as a result of being in the presence of God. Why did I bring all that up? I said it in our Sunday school class this morning, and some of you weren't here, so I'll ask you the question. Have you ever met someone who was so intimate with God, you could see it on their face. I can remember as a young Christian, I was only 16 years old, and I had friends who were like 19 and 20 who had known the Lord for years, three of them. And they were so holy, so Christ-like. Literally, I couldn't look the guy in the eyes because I felt dirty in his presence. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, said, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that's what I see in this guy that was a friend of mine from high school, that he was so intimate with the Father and had such a relationship with God that he literally glowed, if you will, exuding almost the presence of Jesus as he was in the room with me. And so I was seeing the holiness of Christ coming through this guy and making me feel uncomfortable. And again, it's, Coming into contact with the holy, the presence of God, and making me aware of my own shortcomings. So what are we seeing in this story? We're seeing you mess up, the presence of God doesn't stay with you. And I'm not talking about just messing up, I'm talking about sinning. Number two, you can come back to God and say, please don't leave us. And God will relent. Now, the commentaries will tell you that that's an anthropomorphism. God doesn't ever relent. That's just a way of us understanding how God reacts and relates. But the bottom line is, is that God will come back and bring his presence back into your life. And the other thing is, if you stay in intimate relationship with God and experience his presence on a regular basis, 
Something is going to change about you. I don't know that you'll glow. Hopefully you won't grow horns. But something will happen as you interact with Jesus on a daily basis. You will become more like him. You will become holy. Not a holiness of your own. A holiness that is given to you by the Holy Spirit of God. And there was one quote that I wanted to read to you. Because it really kind of stuck with me as I was reading it. They, this was a quote that came out of this study on Exodus chapter 33. And it said, when the church, big C, loses the fullness of God's spirit, she ceases to be distinct as an instrument of God. Remember Moses said, if you don't go with us, how will the people that see us and come into contact with us know that we are in your favor? How will they know that we are your chosen people if you're not there with us? And it's the same thought here in the church, universal, but also the church, Two Rivers Community Church of the Nazarene. If the presence of God is not here with us, we will cease to be distinct as an instrument of God bringing about the kingdom of God in this community. And I don't want you to point any fingers and I don't want you to say anything out loud, but can you think of any churches you've ever come in contact with that you could say didn't have the presence of God and they had ceased a long time ago to be distinct as an instrument of God that was being used of God? I can tell you I've been in some. I can tell you it's been my prayer that I would never be the pastor of one. My goal, my heart, my desire as a human being, as a Christian, is to be able to experience the presence of Jesus every moment of every day. Selfishly, I want to say, show me your glory, God. But the reality is, just like God said to Moses, and Moses was a much more righteous man than I ever hoped to be, you couldn't handle it if I tried to show you my glory. But I'll give you what you can handle. He does. He does. However, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, or 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, we see as though through a glass darkly, as if looking through a veil. We don't see the real glory of God. We see what he enables us to see. So I don't, I'm not saying we don't see God's glory, but we don't see God's glory. We don't see the fullness of who God is. We would never see it until we pass on into the, into the next uh, phase of our life. What I want to encourage you though this week, last week I asked you to be intentional about being an ambassador for Christ. What I want you to be intentional about this week is I want you to carry the fragrance of Christ with you wherever you go. Like a little old lady 
walking down the aisles of the library, and after she passes by, you smell lilacs. Because she's got that perfume. I want you to be intentional about spending so much time with Jesus that he rubs off on you that when you walk the halls of wherever you're at this week, the fragrance of Christ wafts behind you. And people are drawn to look heavenward. May they see your good works and so glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen.